good morning and a welcome to Alger Assembly of God. And to those of you listening online or listening on the radio, we do welcome all of our WTGN listeners. We welcome you back to our series on the book of Joshua. And if you've not been with us, what we're doing is we're taking a verse-by-verse walk all the way through the entire book of Joshua. And it has a number of chapters, and we've actually been in it for a number of months If you're interested in hearing more uh, from the verse-by-verse expository preaching as we see what God has for us all the way through the book of Joshua, all of those are available online, and you can listen to those. But we we have seen how God has rescued the children of Israel, brought them out of Egypt, and then as they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years because they were disobedient to God. They had spied out the land. God had said to spy out the land, and as they did so, 10 of those spies said, we can't take this land. It's impossible. Two of them, Joshua and Caleb, said, yes, let's do it. The 10 outweighed the others, and because of their lack of faith, their lack of trust, their disobedience, God had them wander in the wilderness for 40 years. But we come to the book of Joshua, and we see God is ready. God is prepared to bring them to the promised land. He miraculously enables them to cross the Jordan River. He miraculously helps them to conquer the city of Jericho. We see other battles that are fought, wars that are waged, and we see God bringing them into the land he had set aside for them. And in the past several weeks and past number of chapters, we've seen the division of the land, all of these tribes receiving land. We've talked about some of the cities of refuge that were designated, some of the towns and pasture lands for the Levites, the priests. And what we've seen is that Canaan, this promised land, this was God's appointed land. It was what he had set aside for his people. Truly, anything less than that was not necessarily what he desired. But we saw that there were two and a half tribes, the tribe of Reuben, the tribe of Gad, and half of the tribe of Manasseh, who kind of wanted their own thing. Before they had even crossed over the Jordan River, before they had crossed over into the Promised Land, they saw that here was some land, and it looked good. It looked good for their animals, for their flocks and herds, and so they requested to Moses, the leader at that time, can we have this land for ourselves? Moses said, yes, but you must go ahead, cross the Jordan River with us, and you must do battle with the rest of your uh, fellow Israelites. And once every, everything in the land has been conquered, you can then head back to your land. And so that's about where we are. I'm going to invite you to turn with me to Joshua chapter 22. Last week, we looked at the very beginning verses of chapter 22, where Joshua was commending these tribes these two and a half tribes, for their faithfulness. They had done what was asked. They had gone in, they had battled with the rest of their tribes, and together they had seen God do mighty things. And all of these other tribes now having received their land, it was time for them to then cross back over the Jordan and head back to the land that they had requested. But as we see, as we're about to get to into the remaining portion of chapter 22, We're about ready to see conflict. How many of you know that conflict is inevitable? Raise your hand. Yes. You've seen it. You've witnessed it. You've experienced that conflict happens. 
Now let me ask you another question. How many of you know that sometimes conflict is inevitable, not just in life, but even amongst the body of Christ? Okay, so I'm getting some, some nods. I'm getting a little bit less uh, expressive, uh, you know, hands raised. But let's just put it like this. Okay, this will be safer today. So all of you here at Alger Assembly of God, just understand, you know, we're not talking about Alger Assembly of God. We're talking about other churches. And those of you listening in WTGN land, uh, we're not talking about your church. We're talking about other places. So, Jesse, you can think it's for somebody else, okay? What you're about to hear this morning has to do with somebody else. But we all know that there is a very real possibility that you have faced this or are facing this or might face this. Difficulty and conflict, sometimes even among the body of Christ. In fact, uh, just in this last week, week and a half, what's dominated our news has been the flooding, the hurricane down in Houston, and what seemingly has dominated social media has been one church and one pastor and a response or lack of response or a late response, this or that. And it's not just been from the media. It's not just been from worldly people that have criticized It's been church people piling on, piling on, piling on. I'm not here to go on one side or the other to talk about teachings, theology, background of Joel Osteen, pastor of Lakewood Church, but you've seen the response that has taken place, and you've seen many, even within the body of Christ, that have piled on. Something like that doesn't just have to take place in Houston. There are things like that that could take place in our local area, in our local assembly, in in an assembly nearby, or in family members that are Christians, part of the body of Christ. So what we're going to be looking at today, it's, well, it's entitled, How to Deal with Internal Conflict. Isn't that just a God bless you message? I mean, here we are, we're, we're live on WTGM, but we have spent Months ago, we started this process walking through Joshua verse by verse. And over the course of our time together, we've had some services where God has moved and and we've not been able to get to the message and that message was held off to the next week. And and as we've gone through, uh, we've kind of broken the, the scripture down into chunks. And so here we are, Labor Day weekend, September 3rd, and this is the next topic, the next chunk of Joshua that we're going to be looking at. It's a very real reality, internal conflict. Now, this has nothing to do with whether or not anything is taking place here. I don't believe that that is. But I do know that these are some things that can take place within the body of Christ. Now, if I were to tell you how many points I have in my message, that could cause some internal conflict. So I'm not going to do that. As we get to the notes on the screen, I've not numbered them. So I'll let you number and you can figure it out later. But what we're going to do is we're going to look through the remaining chunk of Joshua chapter 22, and we're going to be looking at some practical biblical principles on how do you deal with internal conflicts, specifically within the body of Christ, as this is now the people of Israel against the people of Israel. So we're going to take a look at this. And again, as we've seen, these two and a half tribes... Reuben, Gad, and half the tribe of Manasseh getting ready to head back over the Jordan River. 
That river was wide, miles wide. There were mountains on either side that would raise and rise fairly high. So this was a pretty massive boundary. As they're getting ready to cross over from the west side of the Jordan back over to the east side, they're getting ready to be separated from the rest of the Israelites. There would be nine and a half tribes left and two and a half tribes then to the east of the Jordan River. You know that phrase, out of sight, out of mind? Would that perhaps be the case? As they were out of sight, as they had getting ready to cross over the Jordan River, would they really become out of mind to the rest of their tribes? Perhaps there's all kinds of things that are going through their minds as they get ready to cross. What could they do to symbolize that they were united with the rest of these tribes? We're going to see what they did. And as a result, as we take a look at this scripture text, there are some things that they did and, and in between these uh, different groups and tribes and the people of Israel that were positive. There's some things that they did that were not so positive. So as a result of their positive and negative responses, we're going to look at a handful of practical ways that you and I can deal with internal conflict. Specifically, it's, it's going to apply within the body of Christ, but these are some principles that would apply to conflict in general. First of all, how do you deal with internal conflict? We've got to beware of mixed messages. We start in Joshua chapter 2, beginning in verse 10. When they came to Gelaloth near the Jordan in the land of Canaan, the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh built an imposing altar there by the Jordan. And the Israelites heard that they had built the altar on the border of Canaan at Geliloth, near the Jordan, on the Israelite side. We'll stop right there for the moment. Mixed messages. Here's what we've got. This altar was built and crafted in Canaan. They had not crossed over the Jordan. They were still on the western portion of the land where the nine and a half tribes, the majority of the Israelites were, and that's where they were creating and crafting and building an imposing altar. Maybe that was to outdo some of the other altars. Remember, as we've gone through the Word of God, we've gone through Joshua, in, in several places we have seen that they would create altars of remembrance. But this was an imposing altar, and it was still placed on the west side, on the Israelite side of the Jordan. Now, what's also interesting is that this altar would probably have been somewhat near, maybe not super close, but in the general area of where one of those other altars would have been fashioned. Remember that when they crossed the Jordan River, God had them collect 12 stones, one from each tribe, and they had one of them that was fashioned in the middle of the Jordan River, and a second one fashioned as they crossed over the Jordan River to the west side. And that was to be a matter of memorial and witness to God's power and honor and glory. So this was perhaps somewhere in the near location of those other 12 stones of remembrance. Wouldn't this altar be a little bit of a conflict? I mean, the first altar, the 12 stones, symbolize how they crossed over the Jordan River into the promised land. And now these two and a half tribes are putting another imposing altar together, and they're going to cross back 
over the Jordan and go back to the east side. So one altar is recognizing how God brought them over. The second altar is saying, we've crossed back to the other side, but we're still apart. We've got to be careful of mixed messages. How about you and I? Sometimes as we interact with people within the body of Christ as well as people outside of the body of Christ, do we give mixed messages? If they see a Christian t-shirt, if they see a Christian bumper sticker slapped on our vehicle, does that message line up with what comes out of our mouth and the actions and activities that come out of our life? It's almost like a mixed message, like those two competing altars. The t-shirt says, I follow Jesus, but the speech that comes out sometimes contradicts it. So we've, first of all, we've got to be very careful that we are cautious of the mixed messages we might send. Here's a second practical principle from verse 12. We've got to avoid the mob mentality. Here's what verse 12 says. The whole assembly of Israel gathered at Shiloh to go to war against them. Maybe you've seen something take place. It's the mob mentality. One person says this, and pretty much everybody who knows that person all of a sudden feels the same way, thinks the same way, without even thinking about it for themselves. The mob says, we've got to do something about this. The people didn't like it. They stormed off. The text says they were ready to go to war. Sometimes it's easy to begin to have some of those same hot-button topics. Today's terminology, we might call them hot takes. I, think, uh, I feel this way or I think this way. And we feel strongly about something. And then we get somebody else to feel strongly about that with us. And pretty soon it spreads and spreads and spreads. And we're jumping on cases for or against something or someone without really understanding the process. You've heard the phrase, shoot first, ask questions later. That's kind of what was happening here with the Israelites. They simply heard of what took place, and all of, all of Israel, these nine and a half tribes on the western portion, gathered to go to war. Here's a great verse from Proverbs chapter 18, verse 13. It says, to answer before listening, that is folly and shame. And yet, here's what happened with these Israelites. They were ready to go to war. They hadn't talked to anybody. They hadn't seen anyone. They hadn't seen anything. They had seen this massive imposing altar. But the mob, the group, everybody said, here's how we feel, and we must do something about it. I would encourage us, let's try to understand the matter. Maybe try to understand from multiple angles and perspectives before we act or react to issues. Here's number three. Address conflicts personally. Verses 13 and 14 read like this. So the Israelites sent Phinehas, son of Eleazar the priest, to the land of Gilead, to Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh. With him they sent ten of the chief men, one from each of the tribes of Israel, each the head of a family division among the Israelite Plans. So again, we've got these nine and a half tribes, and they send Phinehas. 
He's uh, the son of the priest, and then one from each of those tribes, so kind of a leader or a representative. As they included Phinehas in this, it's, it's indicating that they're believing this is something, there's some kind of spiritual issue, some kind of a spiritual conflict, and so they're wanting to actually talk about this. And those are good things to do. We should talk to people rather than about people. Because that's the challenge. When something takes place in a family, when something takes place in a church, when something takes place within the body of Christ, or something takes place in a workplace, something takes place in a community, what's easier? To go directly to the person, to go directly to the source, or to go to somebody who maybe would have, hopefully, our point of view and our perspective, who's going to hear us out? Many times it's easier to go around the issue and go to somebody else. Jesus gave instructions in Matthew chapter 18 about going to the person. See, many times we can be pretty bold behind somebody's backs. You ever ever experienced that? Chances are in your life and time we've experienced somebody saying something behind our back that they never said to our face. And that hurts. Because we feel like, wow, if they only heard from me personally, if they only heard my heart or my vision or my this or my that, maybe they would fully understand it a little bit better. No doubt we've been misunderstood. Chances are also pretty good that we've done some of the misunderstanding by not going directly to the people. See, when we go to somebody other than the one that it involves, it's a little bit more like the gossip, which can spread like wildfire. Here's a writer for the Atlanta Journal who wrote this. I am more deadly than the screaming shell of the cannon. I win without killing. I tear down homes, break hearts, wreck lives. I travel on the wings of the wind. No innocence is strong enough to intimidate me. No purity pure enough to daunt me. I have no regard for truth, no respect for justice, no mercy for the defenseless. My victims are as numerous as the sands of the sea and often as innocent. I never forget and seldom forgive. My name is gossip. We've seen it. We've experienced it. Many times we're on the wrong end of it. And we don't like how that feels. Let's be careful not to be on that opposite end spreading if there's questions if there's concerns let's do our part to address conflicts personally all right you still with me on there it's getting awful quiet like i said this has nothing to do with you this has something to do with with everybody else in town everybody else in the listening area right everybody just nod your head and say yes okay Part of God's word that's good for us to understand because at some point there will be conflicts. It's good to have a biblical basis to understand how do we address, how do we handle some of these things. So uh, I was about to give you the number, but you're the one keeping track. So I'm going to just move on to the next one. Next principle is this. We've got to be cautious in our approach. From verses 15 and 16, it says, when they went to Gilead, to Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, they said to them, the whole assembly of the Lord says, how could you break faith with the God of Israel like this? How could you turn away from the Lord and build yourselves an altar in rebellion against him now? So here's what happened. We've got Phinehas, 
son of the priest, and 10 leaders or delegates. So those 11 individuals have gone to gather with and meet with and hopefully talk with these two and a half tribes. And here's the very first words out of their mouth. Everybody is saying, how could you do this, you big knucklehead? Okay, knucklehead wasn't in here. That was probably one of those more modern versions that I was reading, right? But it says, the whole assembly of the Lord says, how could you break faith with the God of Israel? I mean, they're addressing things personally, but man, they're coming in pretty hot, pretty strong. Look at those words. How could you break faith? The next sentence, how could you turn away? And at the end, how could you build an altar in rebellion? Break faith, turn away, and rebellion. Oh, and by the way, nice to see you. My name's Phineas. I mean, they came in awful strong. Yes, they were coming personally, and so that was positive. But as they came in personally, they came super strong Here's what James has to say. It's one of those familiar verses from the New Testament that we've heard, and it would be great to understand in, in light of this Old Testament text. James says that we ought to be what? Quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Okay, so we've got this Old Testament text as we're reading through Joshua and we're seeing exactly what took place from these Israelites, the nine and a half tribes, and these Israelites, the two and a half tribes. Now let's compare that with the James text. Were they quick to listen? Not so much, no. Were they slow to speak? Yeah, they, they were pretty quick to speak. Were they slow to become angry? Now, they, they, pretty were, they were pretty much angry and just fired up right off the bat, right? So the exact opposite of what James is saying. Now, if you've been in some form of conflict, family, job, church, community, etc., the approach can be a very big key to escalating or decreasing the escalation, right? If we come in cautious, kind, gentle, trying to get to the heart of the matter, there's probably going to be a better chance of resolving whatever issue or conflict has taken place. Now, fortunately, what we're about to see in, in the remainder of the chapter, this did work out pretty well in spite of Phineas and these 10 jumping in hot and heavy to say, hey, what are you doing? You're breaking faith. You're in rebellion. They were blasting them right from the beginning. So what would be helpful would be to be a little more cautious, be a little more measured in the approach as we're trying to hopefully personally deal with an issue. Next principle is this. We've got to learn from the past. Verses 17, 18, and 20. He says, Was not the sin of Peor enough for us? Up to this very day we have not cleansed ourselves from that sin, even though a plague fell on the community of the Lord. And are you now turning away from the Lord? If you rebel against the Lord today, tomorrow he will be angry with the whole community of Israel. When Achan, son of Zerah, was unfaithful in regard to the devoted things... Did not wrath come on the whole community of Israel? 
He was not the only one who died for his sin. No doubt you've also heard the phrase that if you don't learn from history, you are bound to repeat it. So in one of the positives here, we're seeing Phinehas, and he's talking about and he's referencing the past. He's giving a couple examples from rather recent history of Israel. One is the sin at Peor. It involved both spiritual and sexual sin. He's saying, don't you remember what took place here when you did this? What took place was that 24,000 people died as a result. That was taking place in the book of Numbers. He then also reminded them about Achan and his sin. And we covered this in an earlier chapter of Joshua. As they were conquering the city of Jericho, they were not to take anything, and yet he coveted and he took a handful of items, hid them, and when the, the nation of Israel went to their next battle, it was against Ai, it was seemingly a, a small town, a small city, and, and they said, we don't need our entire force, we'll wipe it out, and they were soundly defeated because there was sin in the camp. So one man's sin affected the whole. So Phinehas is he's saying, listen, do you understand what can happen? Do you understand the magnitude of your actions? One man, Achan, I mean, not only did he die, his family died, we lost many individuals as a part of our, our army and our soldiers. Do you understand what can happen? There's two and a half of you tribes that have built this altar, and now there's this conflict. We don't want that to magnify. We've got to learn from history, learn from the past. No doubt there's some situations that you and I can learn from. Interacting with people, maybe getting to know how family members react, getting, getting able to understand maybe how bosses and coworkers react in times of conflict or hardship. Whatever the case might be, can we draw on some of the lessons from history what has gone before? Let's not be oblivious to that. That is something that is practical that will help us in whatever conflict we might be going through. For like Achan, maybe we feel like, well, my actions are just simply me. But we've got to understand our actions affect many other people around us. And I believe that's what Phineas was trying to say. The actions of the, the two and a half tribes can have far-reaching ramifications. Let's think about this, think this through, learn from the past. Now, we skipped over verse 19, so we're going to come back to that in our next principle, and that's this, be gracious. Verse 19 says, if the land you possess is defiled, come over to the Lord's land where the Lord's tabernacle stands and share the land with us. But do not rebel against the Lord or against us by building an altar for yourselves other than the altar of the Lord our God. What's very interesting here, these nine and a half tribes, they sent Phinehas, they sent these ten leaders, and they came out hot and heavy, and they were blasting right from the beginning about being in rebellion. But they did talk, they did converse. Phinehas is he's trying to share about learning from the past. And right here in the middle, they offer a rather gracious offer. Did you catch it? They basically said, if your land is defiled, if there's, you know, this is the promised land that God gave us where we're living, 
What you have asked for was, was not necessarily that land. It's much closer to all of these sinful areas and sinful lands. If that's defiled, we invite you to come back across the river to the west side over here, and we're going to make room and we'll invite you back and we'll, we'll give up of our land and we will create enough room for you to live here with us together. That was a rather gracious move. You and I would do well to be gracious in our conflicts with others. That's not always the first reaction that's in our hearts, right? In the midst of conflict, sometimes our response is, I want to respond to you the way you responded to me, and then some. If you said something mean to me, I'm going to say something even meaner to you. And so it goes back and forth as we continue to escalate the process. Right here in the middle were gracious words where they said, you're welcome to come back over and to live amongst us. We've already divided out this land. We'll make sure that you've got a land and the opportunity of a place to be with us. I'd encourage you to take the first move. Don't allow pride to get in the way because here's what happens. We think, well, I'm in the right. They need to be the one to make the first move. Huh? Is that a little bit of truth coming out? You can just nod. It's okay. You don't have to actually say amen or anything. You just, just nod. Okay. We feel like we're in the right. I didn't do anything wrong. They did. So they need to be the one to start something. They need to initiate this process. Can I encourage us? Be gracious and take the first step. One of my first opportunities, if you would say, at dealing with some internal conflict was in another church that I served on staff. I was filling in for a pastor. And so in the, in the process of this filling in, I was also to oversee and to take the lead. And so decisions that needed to be made, things in the church, anything you know, board-related, uh, finance-related, I would kind of oversee. And so I, I was to work hand-in-hand with our board. We had a, a board member who was rather a, a go-getter, and all of a sudden I began hearing about a board meeting that was called without my knowledge or it was like everything's all done everything's all set up and oh by the way you're invited after pastor had said i was to head up and oversee and so the way that this was done the way that it was coming about made me feel a little you know a little queasy like okay i wonder what what the topics of conversation are going to be at this kind of a meeting and and so delicately we we kind of went through this process and in the in the process of trying to follow up on it he got mad and resigned. There was a big blow up, a big dust up, and end result is we get together, all of us as a board, pastor came and brought in, and so we are gathered together. Now, I'll be honest. My thought was this. Pastor had placed me in a form of leadership. I was to oversee certain things, and what took place was not according to pastor's leadership. I felt pretty good that I was in the right, that I had not done anything wrong. But there was this tense atmosphere in that meeting. And there was this, this kind of nudge inside of me. And, and I'll be honest, I wrestled with it for a while. Because the nudge was basically God's nudge saying to apologize. 
And I'm arguing with God. I'm saying, apologize for what? I didn't do anything wrong, God. And that, and that meeting, it, it was tense. And I followed through with what I believe God nudged me. And I spoke up. I don't remember all of what I'd said. But I, I mustered up what I believe was the most heartfelt apology that I could for any, any part or role that maybe I played in misinterpreting. I, I took the first step. I was trying to be gracious. And everything broke after that. And he came and apologized. And one by one, everybody, rather than, it was just this physical, you know, everyone was almost kind of standing with, with arms crossed and just kind of looking at everybody else. And just that first nudge seemed to kind of bring people together. It was a powerful learning moment. It wasn't necessarily the one that I wanted to learn. I wanted to sit back and have God whack this other guy upside the head. I took a first step, sought to be gracious. Now, I didn't lie. I apologized for something that I, I felt maybe I had done wrong. You've got to be genuine. You've got to be sincere when you are being gracious. And that was the beginning of some mending of that situation. So it's a pretty incredible and powerful moment here when in the midst of them saying, what in the world are you doing, you bunch of rebels? They stop and they pause and they extend a very gracious offer. We've already divided out the land. The nine and a half of us tribes in this western side of the Jordan River, we've already got our land, but you're welcome to come back. We'll redivide. We will make way for you. They took the first step in being gracious. Being gracious and taking that first step goes a long way towards helping in the process of conflict. Let's be careful not to allow our pride to get in the way of resolving issues, whether that's in the church, in our families, in our jobs, in our communities. Be gracious. Here's a next thought, next principle. We've got to guard against accusations. Then Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh replied to the heads of the clans of Israel, the mighty one, God, the Lord, the mighty one, God, the Lord, he knows, and let Israel know. If this has been in rebellion or disobedience to the Lord, do not spare us this day. If we have built our own altar to turn away from the Lord and to offer burnt offerings and grain offerings or sacrifice fellowship offerings on it, May the Lord himself call us to account. No, we did it for fear that someday your descendants might say to ours, what do you have to do with the Lord, the God of Israel? The Lord has made the Jordan a boundary between us and you, you Reubenites and Gadites. You have no share in the Lord. We've got to guard against accusations. It's a challenging thing. Because what's often easiest is to get our finger out and point it and say, but you did or you said, and, and we accuse. Now, to some degree, they're defending themselves by saying it wasn't done as an altar for sacrifices. It's just, well, there's, here's a couple of things. But their couple of things were accusations. Basically, what they were saying is, it's not us, it's you. Well, your kids, your future kids. 
They're basically saying, someday down the road, your kids, your descendants are going to talk to our kids and our descendants because we're on this side of the Jordan and your kids are going to start something with ours because they're going to say, you're not part of us. They're basically saying, yeah, those kids that you don't even have yet, they're the troublemakers. Kind of pointing the finger saying, it's you. And then did you catch verse 25? The Lord has made the Jordan a boundary between us and you. They're making that as if that's what these other people are going to say. Let's just stop there. That accusation is preposterous. Did God wait until all of these lands were decided and then say, you know what, I think I'm going to put a Jordan River right in the middle of them. God created that Jordan River well before it was these two and a half tribes who voluntarily chose the land on the east side. They were the ones who made that split. They were the ones who separated themselves. They chose to live east of the river. They made it a boundary. So we're getting some dialogue. We're getting some discussion. But now we've got to guard against accusations. They begin saying, it's you and your fault and you and your kids. Oh, and by the way, it's probably God, too, for putting that, that river there. We've got to be careful. Many times, maybe you've seen this as a case, but many times, as we blame others, many times the real fault lies within us. But we point the finger to try to deflect from maybe something we've said or something that we've done. We've got to guard against accusations. Here's another big one. We've got to give the benefit of the doubt. As we continue where we left off in verse 25, he says, So your descendants might cause ours to stop fearing the Lord. That is why we said, Let us get ready and build an altar, but not for burnt offerings or sacrifices. On the contrary, it is to be a witness between us and you and the generations that follow that we will worship the Lord at his sanctuary with our burnt offerings and sacrifices and fellowship offerings. Then in the future, your descendants will not be able to say to ours, you have no share in the Lord. And we said, if they ever say this to us or to our descendants, we will answer, look at the replica of the Lord's altar, which our ancestors built, not for burnt offerings and sacrifices, but as a witness between us and you. Far be it from us to rebel against the Lord and turn away from him today by building an altar for burnt offerings, grain offerings, and sacrifices other than the altar of the Lord our God that stands before his tabernacle. This was a long way of saying, listen, it's not what you think. This altar isn't what you think. You think we did it so that we could offer offerings and, and burnt sacrifices there. That's not it. You've got to understand that it's not always, people are not always as they seem. It's not always as they appear. Let's give the benefit of the doubt. Many times we can make false assumptions about other people. You ever done that? You ever admit to doing that? That's a better question. You meet somebody for the first time, you know, they're sizing you up, you're sizing them up, and you get this first impression, oh, I bet they're one of those, and fill in the blank. Then you get to know them. Oh, they weren't who I thought they were. I thought because of this, or I thought because of that, or I thought because of their attitude, or I thought, be, I, thought, I thought they would be more like this kind of a person that I knew. Sometimes we make false assumptions. We've got to learn to give benefit of the doubt. Someone wrote this poem. It says, a woman was waiting at an airport one night 
With several long hours before her flight, she hunted for a book in the airport shops, bought a bag of cookies, and found a place to drop. She was engrossed in her book, but happened to see that the man sitting beside her, as bold as could be, grabbed a cookie or two from the bag in between, which she tried to ignore to avoid a scene. So she munched the cookies and watched the clock as the gutsy cookie thief diminished her stock. She was getting more irritated as the minutes ticked by, thinking, if I wasn't so nice, I would blacken his eye. With each cookie she took, he took one too. When only one was left, she wondered what he would do. With a smile on his face and a nervous laugh, he took the last cookie and broke it in half. He offered her half as he ate the other. She snatched it from him and thought, Oh, brother, this guy has some nerve and he's also rude. Why, he didn't even show any gratitude. She had never known when she had been so galled and sighed with relief when her flight was called. She gathered her belongings and headed to the gate, refusing to look back at the thieving ingrate. She boarded the plane and sank in her seat. Then she sought out her book, which was almost complete. As she reached in her baggage, she gasped, with surprise. There was her bag of cookies in front of her eyes. If mine are here, she moaned in despair, the others were his, and he tried to share. Too late to apologize, she realized with grief that she was the rude one, the ingrate, the thief. It's happened. You and I, we formulate ideas and opinions about people, about situations, all kinds of things, and we've got to learn to give benefit of the doubt. We're pretty athletic. What I mean by that is we're pretty good at jumping to conclusions, right? We jump to conclusions and believe that because someone said this or did this or didn't say this or didn't do this, they must mean this. But, but here's what I've noticed. Have you noticed that when something involves us, we want other people to give us the benefit of the doubt. But when it involves other people, we're not so quick to give benefit of the doubt. No doubt you've been someplace, you've been in a, in a mall, you've been in a, uh, in a restaurant, you've been driving your car, and, and you pass somebody that you know, right? They're on the other side of the street, they're on the other side of the, the store, uh, they're in the next lane as you pass. And so you're getting ready, and you kind of look and wave. Or as you're driving, you kind of look and wave and they just zoom right past you. We can get all, all huffy and, oh, I can't believe it. Didn't, didn't they know that was me waving at them? I can't believe how, how rude they were. Now, if we were the one who passed somebody and didn't wave, oh, we, we would want grace, right? Mercy, right? Well, I, was, I was adjusting the radio. I was, I was checking on my child. I was, I was doing this. I was doing that. I was putting on my sunglasses. I didn't notice. I didn't this. I, Probably something very innocent as to why we didn't see, as to why we didn't wave. If we were the offending party, we would want benefit of the doubt, right? But when someone offends us, ooh, we're, we're going we're gonna to get them. We've got to make sure that we give to other people the benefit of the doubt that we want given back to us. Will we believe the best about others or the worst? The two and a half tribes were basically saying, listen, this alters not what you think. Maybe it's not the wisest thing, but it's not what you think. We didn't do it 
to make sacrifices. Give us benefit of the doubt. Yeah, we've kind of pointed fingers, and yeah, we've, we've kind of said maybe there's been some accusations about you guys, but our heart and our motives are right and pure and clean. Give us benefit of the doubt. It's helpful as we engage with family, friends, community, job, wherever conflict arises, it's good to give others benefit of the doubt. A couple more and we're done. We've got to make sure we seek God's input. Verse 30 says, When Phinehas the priest and the leaders of the community, the heads of the clans of the Israelites, heard what Reuben, Gad, and Manasseh had to say, they were pleased. And Phinehas, son of Eleazar the priest, said to Reuben, Gad, and Manasseh, Today we know that the Lord is with us, because you have not been unfaithful to the Lord in this matter. Now you have rescued the Israelites from the Lord's hand. Then Phinehas, son of Eleazar the priest, and the leaders returned to Canaan from their meeting with the Reubenites and Gadites and Gilead and reported to the Israelites. They were glad to hear the report and praised God. And they talked no more about going to war against them to devastate the country where the Reubenites and the Gadites lived. So we're getting to the end. We're getting to the resolution of the process. In the midst of, of all of this stuff that maybe hadn't been done so well, they're getting to the end, and Phinehas is pleased with the results. He heard their heart. He heard their motives. They're believing the best about them. That altar was not done for the wrong purposes. So Phinehas is pleased. The leaders are pleased. They go back to their people and their tribes, and their tribes are pleased. All these people are mentioned. Who is not mentioned? God. Now, they praised God. They praised God that everything worked out well, but did they seek God? Not once in here does it say they sought God. They listened for his voice. God spoke to them and said, go to war against those two and a half idiots. No. Now, if you've been tracking with us here throughout the book of Joshua, many occasions, God has spoken to Joshua. They have sought the Lord's voice. They've sought to hear from God. But not once in this situation do the people seek after God. If we want to resolve issues in families, in communities, in churches, in jobs, let's, let's not... Avoid going to God. That should be one of the first things we do. We get all the way through this story, all the way through this account, and they're praising God for what happened after having never sought God. Seek God for wisdom. Seek God for insight. Seek God for direction. Seek God for maybe some of the words to share. Seek God about some of the timing on when to share. Seek God about maybe the when and where and how of being gracious. All of these thoughts and all of these principles come from God and His Word, so why not seek God? Now, very fortunately, the nine and a half tribes and the two and a half tribes felt good about this resolution, but it was not God who said, Thus saith the Lord, here's what you do. They didn't seek Him. They praised Him afterwards. Always wise. Never going to lose out by seeking God hearing what he has to say about our situation. One final thought from the very final verse of Joshua chapter 22. It reads like this. The Reubenites and the Gadites gave the altar this name. 
a witness between us that the Lord is God. So this altar that they created on the western side, they named it witness that the Lord is God. Final principle or challenge is this. We've got to live out what we say. And it's very similar to where we began about beware of the principles and and the mixed messages. They're saying this altar means the Lord is God, uh, but really we're not going to live like it. The Lord is God. He gave this land. It's the promised land. It's the Canaan land. uh, But we're not going to live like that because we want this land over here, which is good for our our crops and our animals and our our flocks and our herds. So the Lord is God, but we're sort of going to do our own thing. We've got to live out what we say. What do we proclaim with our mouth? What do we proclaim with our life? Does it line up? Hopefully, as we see and as we encounter people in our family, in our friends, in our community, in our jobs, they would see that we are somebody who lives and acts and speaks as a Christian, that there's something different about our lives that God is at the heart of our lives, that we, though we're not perfect, we're seeking to live out what God's word says and what we are saying. See, these two and a half tribes, they left that altar there. They crossed the Jordan River. They went back to the land they'd requested, separated from the remainder of the Israelite tribe, much closer to the heathen, foreign, sinful lands, and ultimately much closer to and much quicker to falling into sin, and falling into idolatry. They were not living out what they said. They said the the altar means that the Lord is God, but their actions, unfortunately, said the opposite. Will you and I live in accordance with what we say? So I know that's a lot to go through, and it's one of those different kind of messages to preach and proclaim live on the radio and on the internet, but it's where God's word has us. I don't know where you stand with social media. I don't know where you stand in your home, in your community, in your workplace. But I know what God's word has to say. And when we see a conflict between nine and a half tribes and the two and a half tribes of the Israelites, all God's people, we've got to rise up, take some thoughts and some principles to heart. Will we beware of the mixed messages that we send? Will we avoid a mob mentality? Address conflicts personally. Be cautious in our approach. Learn from the past. Be gracious. Guard against accusations. Give benefit of the doubt. Seek God's input and live out what we say. All powerful, practical, put-into-place principles from God's Word to us. 